We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome into the RotoWire NFL podcast for Thursday, April 8th. I'm your host, John McCagney, joined as always by Mario Puig. We are going to dive into some best ball discussion during today's podcast. Mario just put up a great piece up on the website uh, talking about eight guys that he's fading at their current ADPs. We're also going to circle back on some rookies, some pro day workouts, and just kind of finalize putting the pieces together as the NFL draft is just three weeks away. But Mario, I want to kick things off at the quarterback position. You know, it's such a deep position to begin with. So for best ball, you can wait until the 10th, the 11th round even uh, to to address your, your QB1 on, on your given team. And one of those guys that, that's falling in that range right now is Cincinnati quarterback Joe Burrow. Obviously, he's coming off of a really, really bad-looking knee injury uh, in week 11 of last season. So he's got a lot of weapons around him. And that, I mean, that's certainly something. And he showed some some promise last year, of course, as well. But there are some concerns here. So where are you at with, with Burrow? Is he someone that you're kind of staying away from? Yeah, I'm staying away from him because he's basically at high risk to be damaged goods like i think burrow is fine as a player and i definitely like the idea in theory of him playing in an offense with t higgins jamar chase tyler boyd and that would more so be in 2022 onward though because this injury that he's trying to come back from which happened in week 11 like late november he would have been on a tight timeline i think if it had happened like two months earlier if it had happened in training camp we still would be kind of a little bit worried about this injury 
not just for the performance aspect, which we can almost take for a given that he's not going to be 100%. Like he's, if he plays all year, he'll be like 85% Joe Burrow all year. But we can't take week one for granted or much in particular in grant for granted because this is this is an injury that is the ACL, uh, the MCL, I think. And Adam Schefter at the time said there was additional structural damage, uh, unspecified structural damage. And if you're not talking about more ligament damage or talking about bone damage, then it to me seems like you're almost necessarily leaving the possibility of like cartilage damage, which is not good. That if, if cartilage is compromised, it's like the bones hit each other more directly. It, it can make everything about the knee just kind of more precarious. Uh, but we don't we don't know for sure that that's involved. But there's something more than two torn ligaments, which is bad enough in itself. So uh, this price that he's at, it, to be fair, there's not a big volume of best ball drafts right now. When I wrote this, it was I was taking like a week sample basically, and it barely got to ten drafts. So this is not a huge sample. It's not like in a few months when we're going to have like fifty, uh, you know, fifty or more drafts in the one week sample. But he's going in the top 10 rounds, and I list in the article Daniel Jones at 148, Tua Valoa at 154 as better alternatives. But Burrow's also going ahead of Trevor Lawrence generally, and I, I only left him, I only left Lawrence out because I feel like I'm just kind of, you know, beating a dead horse at this point, advocating for him. But yeah, I'm low on Daniel Jones as a player, but at 148, he's he's pretty much even in theory the same thing. As, as Joe Burrow, it's like with Burrow, you don't have any, you don't have any delusions about like, oh, he's going to have a clean, uh, really efficient box score. You're largely investing because Cincinnati threw so many passes last year and because Burrow was running a good amount. But with Daniel Jones, you get the same thing. It's like maybe they're not going to be as aggressive. They probably won't be as aggressive on offense in terms of the pass uh, volume, the, the tempo as Cincinnati. But Daniel Jones is that guy who will chuck it and run a lot. And in fantasy, at some point, that that's good enough, especially in best ball, when you don't need to guess right whether Jones will be good any given week. It's it's the same thing as like the you know the, the same theoretical upside with no injury and more than three rounds between them in the ADP. Plus, to be fair to Jones, having Kenny Galladay there will make him better. So. To me, that that's just such an easy call. I barely need to think about it. No, that that's a really good, you know, uh, pivot off of off of Burrow for yeah. You're basically getting discount Joe Burrow um, with, with less injury risk and, and less uncertainty there. And then uh, you know, AFC with, North defenses. Yeah, God, yeah, that's a that's a murderer's row there. I mean. NFC, well, you know, you you get a couple of uh, Washington Washington's football tough. teams, but yeah. but that I mean that's that's still not as bad as you know Cleveland, uh, Pittsburgh, and Baltimore. And then to your to your other point about you know who's going in that same general vicinity, uh, I'm in a best ball where it, I'm sure you might have heard the the airplane sound. Uh, uh, so I got my draft board up. Um, I'm in the 19th round. And I grabbed Trevor Lawrence at the end of the tenth. Joe Burrow went four picks ahead of him, and I, I, I will never be able to get into that person's brain and understand what the thought process was there. Well, it's the consensus at this point that you take Burrow ahead of Lawrence, and so I think crazy. it's as simple as that. People don't know how to. They, they they're eager to like look at the rookies and ingest all this content about rookies but they don't know how or don't want to on some level make the call themselves. And they look at Lawrence, they look at Burrow, they can't tell the difference. They're like, one's a first overall pick, one's a first overall pick. Look how big Burrow's numbers were in college. And they don't know how to put into context what all those details actually mean. 
So they fail to see the obvious fact that Trevor Lawrence is a much better player than Joe Burrow. And uh, I understand the concern about the Jaguars, I guess, but it's just another instance of not thinking it through. It's like you should be concerned about the Bengals and their offensive line and that division and that region of, of the country they have to play in. Trevor Lawrence is going to be fine as a rookie. Right. I think he I think he's I think in some ways playing in an NFL offense will be easier for him. Like I think I think the NFL uh, illegal contact rules, the way that they call pass interference much more than they do in college, that's stuff that's going to make. Uh, Trevor, that's stuff that Trevor Lawrence can take advantage of better than uh, almost anybody. Like I, I just think Trevor Lawrence. I've said this before. Is like he's he's not comparable to any other quarterback in the NFL history. You have to think along the lines of LeBron James type prospect for what for what he means to football. And offense is going to be fine, or like to whatever degree Urban Meyer's offense is is ill conceived. It's still not going to be anything compared to Zach Taylor, who's a totally inept coach. So. Just go with the better player who's in the better situation. It's Lawrence. It's obvious to me. And I, I think also part of uh, the the sort of reluctance to, to dive in with both feet on rookies, especially at, at this part of, of draft season, is that we don't know, you know where their landing spot's going to be. We know where Trevor Lawrence is going. So like that that part of the equation is already solved for you. And you know that he has guys like DJ Chark. He's got LaVisca Chenault. He's got, a, you know, a reliable running back in, in James Robinson to, you know, add, add another threat to, to the run game to you know, soften up the defense a little bit more. So, again, we know he's going there. We know that Jacksonville stunk last year, but like adding in Trevor Lawrence there just elevates that team to such a such degree to where I just don't understand why he isn't going like inside the top hundred picks, honestly. And I guess part of it to be serious is that uh, people like us telling people what Trevor Lawrence is doesn't really matter as much to, to, to most people. Uh, like if, if uh, you know, if what is it field Yates or like if, if Mike Clay was telling them these things that we're saying, then it would become just like mainstream consensus. But yeah, because, because we are uh, insane weirdos who uh, live on the periphery, uh, eating garbage in the shadows. People don't take us as seriously for some reason. But don't get me wrong. Like when I say people are are afraid to like think for themselves about the rookies, and so they they kind of punt on it. They're not truly punting. They're just deferring to whatever the mainstream consensus is. They do want to be told what to think, just not by us, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. That which is that. fine. I don't care. <laughs> like it's 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 not good to just listen to anybody. Don't listen to us either. <laughs> <laughs> See, that sum, that sums it up beautifully let's go up to the top of the draft board so if you're picking mid first round you you know you're, you're probably going to be faced with a situation where McCaffrey's off the board Kamara's off the board uh Dalvin Cook is off the board and then things get interesting whether it's it's Derrick Henry Saquon Barkley do you jump Travis Kelsey do you jump a guy like Devonte Adams all the way up into the top five but Derrick Henry's someone who's going inside the top five and Maybe we're feeling a little leery on that one. Yeah, I am a big Derrick Henry fan. I was, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I had people on Twitter and in my article comments telling me what an idiot I was for saying Derrick Henry is good. Uh, back when they were telling me that I was an idiot for saying Nick Chubb is good and that I was an idiot for saying Kerryon Johnson wasn't good. Uh, that's that's all stuff that really happened. And, and I very much like to <laughs> recall uh, all the, all the people who were intensely wrong about that situation because it's it's a great source of humor to me, but uh, it's gone a little too far now. I think that Derrick Henry is is clearly an amazing player, but 
for best ball tens, we're talking about PPR scoring and Derrick Henry going in the top five is kind of like categorically wrong to me in that case. If there was a such thing as a standard scoring best ball format, maybe we're talking a little differently at that point, but he's totally dependent on the run game. And that's generally fine when you're talking like, you know, 10th, 12th overall pick, something like that. Uh, especially when most years people are usually overpaying for a Miles Sanders type that they look at the pass catching volume of and they make false conclusions on the on the talent of the of the player in question. And then, you know, with with when that kind of market is occurring and you're getting Derrick Henry after that bust pick, it's like, yeah, that's a good value. That's you're getting in it. You're kind of getting an inch on the competition with that one pick. You can see how you, how you're building something. With yeah, that. you avoided the landmine. Yeah, you you voided the landmine and you got the gold that the the person ahead of you needlessly you know dodged. So you taking Henry at five though means that you're passing on you know maybe it's not Kamara or Cook or McCaffrey, but it definitely is Barkley. And I'm not even a big Barkley fan, but my God, you're talking about a guy who could catch like 70 passes. Right. So it's like I don't even need to believe Barkley's especially great as a runner, but I think he's you know, clearly a pretty good runner. Like his limitations have to do with the vision and then athleticism is just kind of off the charts in every respect. And he, you know, got a ton of motor breaks, tackles, great pass catcher. Like he's not nearly as dependent on the run as Derrick Henry and his upside is categorically, you know, magnitudes better because of what he could do as a pass catcher. Like Derrick Henry would need to outproduce Barkley as a rusher by like 500 yards. And I don't know, at least six touchdowns or something to safely account for the deficit that he'll have as a pass catcher in comparison. So I would, I think you got to take Barkley. You got to take Ezekiel Elliott, even I think over Derrick Henry. And I know all the concerns that there are with Elliott, but if he can, if he is physically able, he's going to get targets, you know, and as bad, as bad as he did last year, we generally have more reason to believe he'll do well with them or at least, you know, much better than he did last year. So it's, it's just a case too of, of people just, too plainly paying last year's prices for results that are not not any longer on the table. Like you, you gotta you gotta imagine what you're paying for this year because you don't have the option of just saying like I'll take a the rushing the, the league rushing title at four, fifth overall, please. It's like that's that's not how it works. You don't get what Derrick Henry did last year, and it's you know I, I love him, but he's objectively coming off a very high point, while Barkley and Elliott are coming off of their like worst possible scenarios. That's that's very true. And, and, you know, I I think that the Tennessee experiment could start to unravel a little bit. You know, Arthur Smith being gone, um, you know, Johnny Smith being gone, Corey Davis. I could see, you know, it's not like teams don't already load up to to stop Derrick Henry to begin with, but they they can do so with a little bit more impunity now, I feel like. Or maybe just the like the running lanes that that they were able to create, especially to the outside with, with some of that, you know, outside blocking. Maybe that doesn't work as crisply in this new offense. And Derrick Henry, for how big he is, he's actually better at just like get running off tackle. So I don't know how this all is going to work out for him. But yeah, you're you're paying uh, the the absolute premium for Derrick Henry if you're spending a top five pick on him. Whereas, like you said, Barkley, even though I've definitely soured on him since he came into the league. You know, it's hard to d- deny that, like you said, he's going to catch 70 passes like he he's such a huge facet of that of that Giants offense when he's healthy so I mean just empirically on on that alone that's just going to give him such an advantage over a guy like Henry who could very well regress and and like you said he's going to need to basically repeat last year to, to hit that value 
Yeah, I, I definitely am targeting A.J. Brown in that offense more so because I I think the Titans are pretty clearly on a downward spiral right now. And they're, they're stubborn enough that they're going to keep trying to get Henry to 20 carries. I think it's just that his current price presupposes that there's going to be multiple 25-yard carry games and maybe even a couple 30-carry games more often 20 plus carries than under. And I think those high range outcomes are much more at risk with Tennessee, uh, not so much because of the defense selling out against the run, but because the Tennessee defense looks awful. It looked, it was, it was so bad last year and Mike Vrabel's idea of fixing it is to promote the, the linebackers coach who was already there to defensive coordinator and to cut Adoree Jackson, who went for $13 million in the open market, that 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 is a stupid man who who pushes that button. Like, there's just nothing else to def- – there's nothing you'd say to defend it. They could have traded Adoree Jackson for some kind of pick because he was available – he was he went for $13 million, and they're not going to get a comp pick for that. Vrabel has no idea what he's doing. He's blowing it all up. He's just a belligerent fool, and that defense is going to be even worse, I think, this year, which statistically it's almost kind of impossible – but in terms of of their talent level, it is definitely worse, and you can you can't just you can't just cover that up. And if you could, Vrabel would not be the guy who could think of how it's it's going to get bad. They're going to lose a lot more games, I think. Yep, they are. And uh, oh yeah, and that, going back, AJ Brown, I, I snagged him in the third round of, of yeah. uh, this particular best. If they're ball. playing catch up, even like four games in a year, AJ Brown smashes his current ADP. It's it's too low. He, yeah, he is something else, man. So, yeah, I can't imagine taking some of the receivers that go ahead of him um, rather than him. Or Michael Thomas went like one pick after him. It's like I'm totally out on Michael Thomas. Um, let's get on to another receiver who we may uh, – our listeners, our loyal listeners definitely uh, maybe could see this one coming down the pipeline. But uh, Yeah, we could we – can... Borderline skip this one and Deontay uh, Johnson at 45 going ahead of Julio. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Go Jones. Don't do that. Don't, don't. Like I, I guess I should clarify. In, in a prior podcast, we did acknowledge some concern over whether Matt Ryan would be the quarterback all year. I think he'll be the quarterback all year at this point. Like that contract restructure that he did, it wasn't the kind of thing that rules out the the card, uh, the Falcons taking a quarterback at fourth overall. Uh, it, it actually makes it pretty 
reasonable for them to especially target Trey Lance or Justin Fields and just let them sit for a year. Uh, but Matt Ryan, if he plays 14 games, Julio is smashing value in, I don't know, the mid-second probably. And here he is falling into almost the fourth round with Deontay Johnson going ahead. Don't do that. Nope. That's uh, that's way overthinking it, and uh, that, that will uh, get you burned. Uh, let's go to another receiver going about a round later than Deontay Johnson. That's Brandon Ayuk. Uh, you know, someone who had a very impressive rookie season. I, th- I think uh, anyone could could see that. Um, but there's also contextual issues there where George Kittle was hurt for a, a huge chunk of the season. Debo Samuel was hurt for a chunk of the season. You know, he hurt his foot over the summer, that that type of thing. So there is there's a lot of dysfunction in that San Francisco offense, and it kind of pumped up Brandon Ayuk maybe a little bit. But, uh, you know, so while he is talented, uh, what's going on with him? Well, kind of like the Henry ADP we were talking about, it's just a case of people very clearly kind of clicking descend on last year's point totals and then making their rankings on that basis. There's there's just nothing at all in, in, the, in the evidence of that San Francisco offense to indicate that Ayuk is worth this ADP. It, it's, it's inconceivable that he would have a target rate like he had last year over a sample where both George Kittle and Debo Samuel are playing. And I'm, I might've screwed something up because I don't know. It's like, I don't, I don't sleep that much. And I was looking between the game logs, of these three different player pages. And it's a lot of the same letters over and over and red lines going across the screen. And it's, it's uh, it is a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. But uh, I was trying to just cross on like, you know, okay, Kittle and Debo were both out here, both out here. One of the two was out here. And as it turns out, as it is great, I should say, that Ayuk had 96 targets and 728 snaps, and he did a good job with those targets, and he's, he's clearly a good player. But at 55.2, he's going ahead of Tyler Lockett, who had kind of like the worst possible ending to the season and still, I think, over a 16-game projection would be safely ahead of Ayuk. Uh, so it's like people are just drafting on vibes, like how year-end vibes, you know? It's like, man, Ayuk was hot. Lockett sucks now. I hate that guy. Uh, Cooper Cup, he's he's dust. Uh, DJ Shark, he's dust. Ayuk is where it's all at. Let's go. Um, that's that's I guess the, how the brain works of like the the average uh, hype merchant on Twitter nowadays. But Ayuk at fifty five point two is presupposing that ninety six targets and seven hundred twenty eight snaps. To suppose that you have to remove Kittle and Debo from the from the sample because of those ninety six targets, fifty four of them which is 56.3% of his targets, occurred in the five games where neither Debo nor Kittle played. So Ayuk played only 12 games. It's not as bad as if, you know, that that sounds worse. If it's 16 games, it's still not great for 12 because that means he had 56.3% of his targets on 41.7% of his schedule. And then in the and then in five games where one of Kittle or Samuel sat, he had 22 targets. That's that's only a little bit higher than the rate that he had with both on the field, but still higher. The f- there was four games where both Kittle and Debo Samuel that Ayuk also played, and he had 20 targets in those those four games. So even if you get that up to six targets per game with both Kittle and Debo, you're not getting anywhere near the rate that this ADP is supposing. It's it necessarily has to subtract Debo Samuel or Kittle, and probably both. Yeah, so that, that's some good mathing you did there. That, probably the most mathing. It's the only ever. kind I can do. I can do addition and subtraction uh, barely. 
as far as I've as we've gotten in our lives, that's all I've needed to know how to do. I think I don't, I don't remember how to do long division. I failed pre-calc because uh, I just, I can just do that. I don't I don't need to learn how that stuff works. Oh man, just just adding and subtracting. So, uh, who would you be adding to your team in place of a guy like Brandon Ayuk in that range? So in that range, it would be Tyler Lockett, Cooper Cup, DJ Chark. Chark's barely in that range though. He's he's way back at 67, which is a full round later than Ayuk, which is it's just wrong. It's it's misunderstanding things in, in more than one respect. But DJ Chark, if he's healthy, will have a better season than Brandon Ayuk if Kittle and Debo both play more than, I don't know, 10 games. Uh, assuming that the, the 49ers don't end up with some kind of insane quarterback upgrade, um, which if you believe the reporting, they definitely will not. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'm not I'm not so certain that they take Mac Jones at three. I, I actually don't believe it. Uh, I, I, it's one of those things where I, f- I can tell, like I'm probably wrong on some level, but if, if, if they, t- if the 49ers take Mac Jones third overall, I'll just deny it for years. Like I'll, ref- I'll just, I'll just go insane about it. No this question. Didn't happen. I'm, not, I'm not believing it. It's too ridiculous. Um, but it should be noted if Brian, if Brandon Ike is catching passes from Mac Jones, this, this ADP is just pure fantasy. It's not, oh, man. Yeah. That's good. That's going to but age very poorly. It's then. important also to note there's no real solid evidence that he should be ranked ahead of Debo Samuel. Like there's the, there's the durability concerns with Debo Samuel, but Debo Samuel was, was given similarly undue hype after his second year. People had, uh, people are going to say the foot was, was like the only thing that was wrong there. And, and on some level it was, but they were doing the same thing with him that they're doing with Ayuk. It's like, you, you got to remember the other people are there. They don't, they don't exist in a Georgia Tech op- offense where it's like just one receiver at a time. Those guys are all competing with each other. Yeah, and and Debo, Debo by uh, comparison is going in the early eighth round, according yeah, to. Yeah, he's uh, going something like four rounds later than Ayuk. When if you make objective projections between the two, I bet Ayuk barely comes out ahead because Debo's good. Yes, he he really is. So so yeah, that it's it's quit. It's funny how quickly we we can forget the lessons that were taught to us just a year ago. So that that's pretty wild. Um, let's go over to Indianapolis. Obviously they got a new quarterback situation. Uh, let's get into their second year receiver, Michael Pittman. This one stung a little bit because I, I read this article after I had selected Pittman, uh, in my, in my draft, I grabbed Sorry. him at the <laughs> end of wrong. the eighth. Uh, no. So let, let's, uh, let's hear it out on, on both sides then. What, what's, um, what's kind of giving you the heebie jeebies on, on Michael Pittman? Well, I wasn't that high on him as a prospect, so in some sense I'm just biased, I guess. As much as it might just be me trying to you know, convince myself of my prior beliefs, when I look at Michael Pittman's rookie year, I don't see much in the way of promise, or at least not, not consistent with the kind of expectations that have been put on him. I think he's a good player. I think he can be uh, you know, a positive contributor to a truly good offense, but I don't think he can carry an offense. I don't think he can really dictate the offense's baseline. I don't think he can command a high share of whatever sort of offense he might play in because he, he, so he played last year through, he had some injury trouble, I guess. Yeah. It had a um, compartment syndrome. So like his calf. Okay. Yeah. So uh, perhaps that affected him in, in some of these games, but he played 13 games and uh, sorry, I'm, I'm losing track of my numbers here, but basically the concern with him is he, he played a pretty healthy snap count 
and his his yardage trailed to the snap count pretty safely. And it's not because there was like touchdown production stopping his yardage on these catches that he made. Just he just wasn't getting that much usage. And he wasn't he specifically was not generating much in the way of air yardage. Like if you look at his numbers, they're they're pretty discouraging from the air yardage per snap and sure. he, even when adjusting for the depth of target. And it's pretty dependent on yards after the catch that registered well above average. And Pittman's he's not bad after the catch or anything, but I don't think it's likely that for his career, he gives more after the catch than the average. Like I, I think if anything, that's, that's a stat that's likely to drop a little bit. Uh, but the, the basic problem is this 90 ADP is uh, it's like 16 picks. So more than a round ahead of Michael Gallup who had 300 more yards and four more touchdowns than, than Pittman did last year. Granted he played uh, Gallup played 16 games. I think, but he did that with Andy Dalton at quarterback, and I don't, I don't want to put unfair, you know, I don't want to jinx or put unfair expectations on Dak Prescott and that horrific ankle injury he's coming back from. But it seems like he's going to be fine, knock on wood. And if Dak Prescott's at quarterback, Gallup probably belongs in like, I don't know, this sixth, seventh round again. Uh, going, going more than a round later than Pittman is. I guess I should have just said, like, take Gallup higher and not necessarily bash Pittman so much. Uh, but I think it's also egregious to take Pittman more than a round ahead of Devontae Parker, who was on, like, a 900-yard, uh, five-touchdown pace over 16 games, even in a year where the Dolphins struggled to throw the ball as, as they, you know, tried to break into uh, – like, two is going to be a little better, especially with Will Fuller there. That probably helps Parker, too. Uh, if he's doing 905 touchdowns in a worst-case scenario, then we should give him a more generous – sort of assumption in his production. Like we should say like, yeah, maybe he's going to break even with what he did in 2019 and 2020, you know, split the difference. And if he's splitting the difference, he's way ahead of Pittman. Uh, Sterling Shepard had 26 more catches and 153 more yards in 12 games than Pittman did in 13. You can get Shepard 60 picks later. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I'm biased, so I don't, I don't want to hammer this point specifically, but my own personal prediction is that Paris Campbell will easily outproduce Michael Pittman on a per game basis this year. And Paris Campbell is going a hundred picks later. It's as if people think he won't play. He's going to be their leading. Yes, you got receiver. him too. So I had, yeah, no, that's good. So when I, when I'm bashing picks like these, like the Pittman 98 EP, it kind of, my criticism largely goes out the window when you're doing it in a pursuit. And especially when you success, uh, especially when you succeed in, in making the stack, like if you if someone's going with Pittman and 90 overall, I'm like, I don't like that. But if they do get Paris Campbell later and, you know, I guess you would maybe go with Carson Wentz in this scenario, even though you you know don't really want to in vacuum for this yeah, particular. I don't, I don't I, I feel, I'm suddenly feeling a little overexposed to, to Indianapolis or, or more specifically to Carson Wentz. But <laughs> if I just close happens, my eyes and just look at the box score, it'll be fine. Right. From a roster construction standpoint, it makes sense. And we do have to consider the chance that we're just wrong about stuff. And if, if everybody's wrong about Carson Wentz, it'll be surprising, but it won't be a sh- the most shocking thing ever. The, yeah, there will be something more shocking this year. If Carson Wentz has a really good year, there will still be something more shocking that happens. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, <clears throat> I guess when, when it comes to Pittman, uh, I, I'm just – I'm just kind of betting on him being able to maybe get downfield a little bit more. I think to your point about the air yards, like that's, that's definitely true. And, and, you know, there've been other cases that we've 
you know, dissected over the years, talking talking about guys after the catch, and it's like, well, he can't sustain this. Like, it, it was a big thing with like AJ Brown or something. It's like, well, he's the kind of guy that, that that's going to stay. I, I think you probably have a good point there when it comes to Pittman being, you know, in that elite yards after the catch category. He's probably a little bit more closer to league average, but yeah. I also think that. You know, sixty for, catching sixty-seven percent of his passes and only ending up with one touchdown. Like, I'm willing to just kind of bow to the variance gods and say that he had some bad touchdown luck and maybe throw a little bit of shade at Philip Rivers, that sort of thing. Because uh, I don't know. I think that Pittman is if he, you know, if that touchdown count bumps up to five or six, and you know the target count bumps up to 80, 90, which I think it easily could, especially if he plays the full season. I think he should be able to return value. Maybe he's not the uh, the league winner, but I think he's someone that if you have him as like your, you know, kind of rotating wide receiver three, wide receiver four, um, I, I like the things that he can do. And and if I if I can mention the vibes, his vibes are strong against Buffalo. Yeah, I just I guess for me it's that like I I agree with your optimism scenario as described. It's just that. I don't think it requires as much imagination to see how Gallup and Parker and Shepard can yeah. all get there, at least in PPR scoring in Shepard's case. Obviously, in standard, Shepard is not that interesting. Uh, 26 more catches in one less game is kind of like, I, I don't need to read more kind of thing, you know? Uh, so I, I think Pittman's fine. I think he's he's more like a victim of unfair expectations at the moment than like someone that I think is bad or anything. Okay. All right. That that all tracks. And again, um, if you're going with Pittman, maybe back, yeah, back him up with with uh, he's Campbell. so he's cheap. cheap. Just get Campbell anyway. But definitely, if you're stacking like the Colts offense, fifteenth round. Um, and and you know it's it, crazy, it, man. It's it's gonna be. I I want to get like I don't want to jinx Paris Campbell to have like a third insanely bad injury luck year in a row. But it seems unlikely, and especially because he's had he's got like hurt everywhere with just like random trauma injuries. He's like car crash, concussion, broken wrist, hand, uh, what the knee, the the knee tear. It's like these these are all random things that like if it was a hamstring pull or a tear every time, or he's doing like the Gerald McCoy where he just tears his pectoral muscle three years in a row, that would be different. This mm-hmm. is a guy who's clearly had bad luck, and there are not five better athletes in the entire NFL. Yeah, he he's crazy, crazy athletic. So good, good stuff there. Yeah, I'm, I will I will smile serenely when Paris Campbell breaks out because I know you've been, uh, you know, you've had to dig in your heels, and I, I think eventually it's it's going to pay off this year. Luckily for everyone else, I'm muted, but I will never shut up if that happens, like ever. <laughs> if you thought the Nick Chubb, Derrick Henry stuff is bad, you just don't understand just how bad it can get. Late. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get on over to tight end. Um, one of last year's darlings, you could say, was was Big Bob Robert Tunyon and or Tunyon, sorry, Bob um, Tunyon. Yes, he. I mean, he was awesome. Like uh, objectively, like it was yeah. it was crazy for for all these years where everyone's you know we live in Wisconsin, everyone's mat hand wringing all the time. Why don't they have a tight end? You know, like it feels like they they just will never replace. Jermichael Finley or, or whatever, and they, they're just keeping chasing it, but it, it's never going to happen. Then Tunyon comes along, and he, he has the crazy, what was it, the Monday night game against the Falcons where he had like two or three touchdowns, um, had some other really impressive games, of course, and, you know, probably one of the best waiver wires 
you know, pickups of the entire 2020 season, especially in a year where tight end was just a total minefield, you know, between the the Kittle injury, maybe Andrews being inconsistent on a week to week basis. There was just a lot going on at tight end. So if you could find some stability in, in Tanyan, then, then you're obviously very happy with him. But what kind of makes you a little bit concerned about him at his current ADP right now? So Tanyan is probably good in some way or another, but his numbers should make you really suspicious of, of anything that kind of um, anything that presumes growth with his fantasy total is something that you should be pretty skeptical of because more more likely he's maxed out in pretty pretty much every respect because there can't possibly have been a more efficient and explosive per target season for a tight end ever. Uh, it's, it's insane how efficient, like truly automatic Tunyon was on a per target basis. He, he barely missed the 90% catch mark. He was 89.7 rounding up. We're calling it 90. Yes. Not just that 9.9 yards per target with 11 touchdowns on those only 52 catches. So the touchdown rate is pretty much like, it's not impossible, but the touchdown rate is pretty much as close to impossible as you can get. The, the catch rate and the yard for target number in conjunction with the touchdown number basically is impossible. Like, it just doesn't make sense uh, to, to be catching an, a touchdown on every less than five of your catches and still have enough room to run to get to 9.9 yards per target. It's like those every play that wasn't a touchdown was a big play, basically, and every target was on target. Uh, or Not to say, like, he didn't make good catches. Like, he did make good catches. Uh, it's just... No one has ever made that many shots in a row, basically. Mm-hmm. And he that, that indicates that he's good. And of course, like he's he's working very well in this system. But you have to look at that and, and wonder how how is it even possible that it's this automatic? And I think some of the answer is clearly that these were schemed open a lot of the times. A lot of the times this is Matt LaFleur's play sequencing, just totally pantsing the defense. And it's that's something that's going to continue on some level. But you have to assume that defenses are more dialed in on LeFleur this year than they were last. Like, he could still be a safely top-five play caller and get results safely worse than last year. And if that's true, then Tunyon, I think, in particular, is the person who would who would profile for a reduction in efficiency. But he could get more target volume. Like, they, uh, you know, if you're LeFleur, you probably should investigate a way to get Tunyon more targets. You should see how far this premise can go before the defense starts catching on and giving you worse returns. Because if you're getting 10 yards of target and a touchdown every four and a half catches and 90% of the targets are landing, you should see how much you can do that before it starts to get to like 75% caught and, you know, eight and a half yards of target and a touchdown every eight catches. Cause then the defense is moving to stop it. Um, and if they're not stopping it, like why the hell not go back? But the problem is, it just doesn't seem to be structurally viable because they're going to give probably like 20, 25 snaps a game to Mercedes Lewis, who does the blocking stuff that Tunyon doesn't really do. And they could choose to just give basically zero snaps to both Jay Sternberger and Josiah DeGuara. But if both of those guys are on the roster, those are both third round picks. And as much as we're giving Tunyon credit, we probably can't assume St- like Sternberger's terrible. We probably can't assume DeGuara is truly useless. It was a terrible pick, but he can probably give them some snaps, you know? So Tunyon's bigger problem than his target rate or anything last year was the fact that he played 638 snaps. And 
it's just hard to see how he gets over 700 or so. Uh, and if he does, even if he does, like, what is that going to mean when he's likely to have something more like a 78% catch rate and like eight and a half, nine maybe yards a target, uh, probably more like five touchdowns than 11. That kind of stuff is not affordable at 90th overall. So I, I'll get to you, uh, your pivots here in a second, but I'll, I'll use this as a jumping off point because there was a small tight end run uh, in the in the ninth round and the start of the ninth round in the, in this most recent draft that I was doing. Uh, I went Hunter Henry um, in, with the second pick of the ninth round. Mike Gesicki went right after that. Bob Tunyon uh, right after him. So three tight ends right in a row. Did the room get that right in terms of the order? I feel like in most drafts, Tunyon goes ahead of those guys, but I would take Hunter Henry for sure over Tunyon. I don't know about Gasicki. Gasicki is a little weird to me. I think something's off with that guy. Uh, but if he's getting snaps, he's he's definitely producing as a pass catcher. It's just he kind of has that Tunyon problem where it's like he doesn't get many snaps either, and the offense is not not nearly as good. Uh, it's like Durham Smith or whatever plays a lot, and, and so Gasicki can only play so many snaps in theory. But with Hunter Henry, you're going to get a three-down player. And yeah. I think he's – like uh, the, the ADPs of Hunter Henry and Jonu Smith make no, no sense. I, I have Jonu Smith basically alongside Hunter Henry. And yet Jonu Smith is – so in these 10 best ball 10 drafts that are in the sample, he's going 35 picks later than Tunyon. That's, I think, just kind of wild. That's, that's crazy to me. I think Tyler Higby going 30 picks later than Tunyon is also – a little bit silly. I know everybody hates Higby now, but the narrative on him is warped too. I mean, he was, he was still good last year. It's just that Jared Goff got a lot worse last year and Tyler Higby played like four games with a broken hand. So it was, it was so annoying watching these, these, these just scoundrels on Twitter be like, Oh yeah, we told you that the Gerald Everett splits with Tyler Higby proved that it was, you know, that he was a bust. And it's like, he broke his damn hand. Shut yeah. up. Have some what is it, grace? I don't know what the word is. Like you're just lowly turd people who like <laughs> do cartwheels when when someone breaks their hand because it proved that their splits uh, yeah. program was was an oracle. Like you're just an idiot. Um, but yeah, Tyler Higby, if he doesn't break his hand, all we have here is a player who's had like Tunyon like efficiency in an offense that's about to get its baseline shot through the roof by replacing Jared Goff with Matt Stafford. So I think Higby could, could be a beneficiary of that. I think uh, otherwise Irv Smith, I'm surprised that I thought he would get, get more hype. I thought he would be going in an uncomfortably high part of the ADP. Um, But if he's, he's in this 10 draft sample going 30 picks later than Tunyon, it's like, I take Irv Smith easily over Tunyon. And if, if it's three rounds difference that or you know, two and a half rounds difference, then that's that's something I'm willing to go 100 percent on. Like, I don't feel the need to diversify that price. So a quick aside, uh, Irv Smith went in the beginning of the 10th uh, in, in this one. And just my own tight end strategy, I, I didn't go in thinking I would go this way. But I, I went with Mark Andrews in the fifth just because. I like Mark Andrews. I want to get a share at least. Um, and I, I got Lamar Jackson with, with my next pick as well to, to kind of fortify that. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't go into these drafts necessarily feeling compelled to go heavy at tight end, but I did go Hunter Henry in the ninth. And then 
we got to a point it, once you get into the 11th that there's just a group of guys that I'm not particularly enamored by, especially at some of the other skill positions. I mean, obviously I'm not going after Jamison Crowder. Uh, Gabriel Davis would be too high there. Chuba Hubbard went in the 11th. That doesn't make a ton Fade of sense. Hubbard now. Um, so I went with Kyle Pitts in the 11th and I figured that that's a, that's a best ball swing for the fence. It is. I think it's totally reasonable. So I don't know if I'm going to end up with many Pitts shares, but I, I should probably make up my mind now because his price is not going to get any lower. No, no matter where he goes, that price is only going to get higher. I felt I lucky you're going to get him where I did. I bet he's going to start going in like the late eighth sometimes when training camp comes around and he's wearing whatever uniform that he's wearing in the NFL. And he's, you see him running in practice. People are going to, for some reason it, it always takes, or it oftentimes takes just seeing the guy running in NFL garb. For you to for the people to see how fast and how big they actually are. Like there's something about college field, college uniforms that guys just look different sometimes when they show up in the NFL setting. And Pitts is gonna be one of those guys where it's like he shows up and and people are just gonna say, like, oh God, this there's no way this guy fails. And it's probably true to say that. So I should I should figure it out while I still have the the choice, I guess, because, yeah, Pitts is not going to be a 10th round option in August, in my opinion. No, and I do look forward to the people um, being like, well, rookie tight ends don't don't apply the norm to this guy. That is a huge mistake. Like he is, you know, to to, among tight end prospects, he's the LeBron James of, of them. Like he's no one is as big and fast and moves like him. It, it just don't it's like the don't best give him the freaking Gonzalez, Austin Hooper treatment or something. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, he's he's probably the best tight end prospect since like Tony Gonzalez. It's, Not that he's the same kind of player as he's a he's a different looking kind of monster, but it's it's clear that he, like I know I'm guessing some people are going to look at him and say, like, oh well, I remember all the hype with Eric Ebron. This is not like Ebron. I, I I was not particularly high on Ebron, but Pitts is so good it kind of like frightened me. Yeah, man. Yeah. So he's he's something else. I look forward to it and and um his faders will uh, look pretty silly as well. Let's get to one more tight end uh before we move on to a little bit of rookie discussion. Uh there's an if there's one guy who who might be able to kind of compete with Tunyon for like the maxed out efficiency, well, maybe the not the maxed out efficiency, but like maxed out fantasy va- uh, value or you know what the currency that he holds in the fantasy community right now, it might be Logan Thomas, but that that might be the AMC stock of tight ends. Yeah, I would say that Logan Thomas would be a fine kind of like a glue guy pick at tight end if he was going 30 or 40 picks later, but he's going about a hundredth overall. And it's, it's just too obvious. It's like, it hurts me that people are falling for this. It's again, the theme that we talked about of, of paying for last year's prices. And I can't really imagine a much more obvious case of it than, than Logan, Logan Thomas, because he had a good year in fantasy terms, but only in relative fantasy terms, which is to say like the field at tight end was lower than it's been in years. And in that, within that context, the people who owned Thomas just had like the feeling of success and profit much greater than what his actual in a vacuum numbers would merit. You normally do not care at all about a 72 catch, 680, a 680 yard tight end. No one cares about that. But last year, it was correlated pretty heavily to winning your league. 
So people are kind of like riding that sentiment, that like, you know, dopamine rush and letting it bleed into their 2021 rankings. And there's a few things that we know for certain are, you know, close to certain. One is that Thomas will probably play fewer snaps in 2021. He led the league in tight end snaps with over a thousand. No one else had over 992. I think it was for Darren Waller in second place. And there's something only like uh, only nine tight ends in the league played more than 785 snaps. So that's one of those things. It's it's probably more or less a reality of just the bruising nature of tight end. Guys don't play a thousand snaps if only because they usually sprain an ankle at 900 or something like that. So I'm not saying like predict injury for Logan Thomas, but you have to project like the possibility of just complicating factors like game flow, uh, just a a little cramp in a game. Like that's, that's all it takes to throw him off of that uh, snap count from last year. And then within that unsustainably high snap count projection, you're taking a target volume that won't maintain won't maintain either because that's the offense where Terry McLaurin was hurt for a few games. Uh, when he was out there, the second leading receiver was like Cam or JD McKissick uh, yeah. and Cam Sims. Like you replace Cam Sims with Curtis Samuel. You get McKissick off the field a little more often for Antonio Gibson, who's going to draw more targets per snap than he did last year. It can only get worse in my opinion for Thomas's target share. And that's after, uh, you know, getting less of a snap count. And the reason you, you can project, I think, less of a share with certainty is because Thomas wasn't actually a benefit to the offense. It was more like the the offense just kind of was a, you know, run it, run it. Let's see if Alex Smith can check down to someone for a first down and let's do it again. See if we can get a field goal. That was what the offense was. And Logan Thomas and J.D. McKissick were the check down guys. Like Alex Smith couldn't throw it to anywhere else. So he had to throw it to them. And the returns show that this was not productive because he was actually below the team baseline with that. And it's kind of like the Deontay Johnson thing where it's like people look at the target volume and they see merit where if they looked more closely, they could see dysfunction. And for the team to improve itself, it's per se an objective to get that target count lower because those targets as distributed are not helpful. They need to find a different place to put them in. Uh, So, Washington couldn't last year, both because Smith just refuses to throw downfield and they had no one else. Now they have Ryan Fitzpatrick, who is too willing to throw downfield, and they have Curtis Samuel. And wouldn't be surprising if Kelvin Harmon or Antonio Gandy-Golden got into the picture a little bit. So with Thomas, you have to assume basically everything regresses. And he already was starting from like an artificially high imagined point. You know, it's like 72 catches, 680 yards, and it's going to get worse it's not that hard to figure out how that how that one's headed. He's he's way too expensive. Yep, absolutely. So that that um that sets the record straight on, on Logan Thomas, a, a clear obvious fade at his current ADP, and I, I just probably won't have any shares regardless. I'll of, probably have zero. Yeah, just not really my, my type of dude. Love the story. I mean, it, I loved watching. Yeah, good for him. I hope he gets paid Tech. out of it or something. Yes, hundred percent. But but uh for he's probably not going to help us uh, get paid in terms of uh league winnings. Uh, not this year, at least. He might have last year, though. Um, let's get on over to a couple notable pro days of late and, and you know, kind of setting the record. You're getting close to, to finalizing your rookie rankings, Mario. What's the latest when it comes to Rashad Bateman? Because I, I feel like, the, you know, the, it's been kind of a hard and fast rule throughout draft season that it's um, 
It's Jamar Chase, and then the two Alabama guys, uh, Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith, however order you want to put them. And then fourth becomes a little bit more of like where you get an insight of where an analyst's head is at. And a lot of guys have had Rashad Bateman kind of locked into their fourth spot. And a lot of that, you know, not necessarily all of it had to do with, but you know, he was a guy that was listed at what, like 6'3", 210 pounds or something at Minnesota. 6'1", 6'2", 210, yeah. So he, he was billed as a big receiver. Uh, measures in at his pro day, 6'190". So that, that empirically changes... The, the type of receiver that he is and like he can't play the bully ball style because like you could believe the um like the big receiver narrative when, when it came to him because he played like a big receiver in college but you're not going to be able to with that frame you're not going to be able to bully guys in the nfl the way you did big 10 cornerbacks right so the rashad bateman narrative has been pretty interesting for a while because he ascended at the same time that this kind of emerging draft analysis paradigm which has been informed with a lot of good data a lot of good reasoning of you know putting a high emphasis on putting age adjusted production you know in the way the Bateman super fans tend to look especially especially at it is age breakout which mm. mean that, that I understand why they fixate on it as as stated but I think they get it a little wrong to me the breakout age doesn't really matter you just should care about the age adjustment to the value of the production that's there. So it's like, we're kind of using synonymous terms in some points. It's like, they say he didn't break out yet. I just say like, he didn't play well that year, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or like he, he, this guy broke out late. It's like, uh, whatever. It's, it's just, it's production that just gets penalized. Cause he's 22 and a half stuff like that. So it's like, but, but it leads to slightly different conclusions from my frame versus theirs, because I don't feel compelled to call Rashad Bateman a top 10 pick because he had 700 yards at 18 and a half years old, mm-hmm. or rather like whatever it was, like 28% of the offense or something. They say like once a player clears that hurdle to the way that these people view uh, draft analysis, it's like they become infallible at that point. Like that, t- according to their, their understanding of material reality, it's like that player must be good because they broke out at this age. Whereas I look at that and I'm like, well, especially given that he was below the team baseline, I think we can more so say Minnesota just didn't have anyone good after Tyler Johnson that year. And uh, don't don't get me wrong, that was a it was a good sign for Bateman to so much as get on the field and you know stay on the field the way he did that year. But the production was being sold as like this evidence of stardom that I don't think was fair. Um, and then you talk about yeah, the being talked about as a two ten receiver who runs a four three nine. It's like that's that's putting him pretty specifically in like a Justin Jefferson kind of category as a prospect if you're that athletic and you produce the way he did. And it turned out he's not 210, he's six foot 190. And it turned out he's not like a 439 guy, he's more like a 445 guy. And the, the people who were committed to this, this narrative of him did, were not deterred in any sense. Like they did not feel the need to, to adjust the description of him or, or, you know, certainly didn't feel the need to like, uh, downgrade him, but I think at the very least you have to acknowledge like this is a different application. Like the category of player that he is is different, and that's mm, the way I see there's it. There's not a not a lot of great names. I mean, th- this is obviously not like the best analysis, and you shouldn't only do this. But yeah, of the guys that that fit those uh, weights of si- of six foot one ninety, uh, over running over a four four four. You got Deami Brown, who is also an unknown, and, and I don't think that he was viewed as the same type of receiver th- throughout all this. 
And you got Stefan Diggs. He doesn't play at all like Stefan Diggs. And then Diggs it's is 16 pounds heavier too. Something yeah. like that. We have we have him entered as six foot one ninety one, so maybe uh, Stefan Diggs. Yeah. Oh, if that's wrong. Well, anyway, oh, yeah. it's a, it's good. It's, um, Great. Yeah, no, it's just, it's a. In any case, though, you're right. Like the 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 list of comps changes, and it's like people used to make comps on the basis of that two ten and the four three nine, and it's like, well, you can't just totally scrap your list of comparisons and then say everything's the same too. But um, the way I see it, it's like you can say that the, the Bateman theory is different than you thought it was and still be t- totally optimistic about him, which is what I am. I, I think it, like he's something different than what we were being sold, but he's still something good. And I don't, I don't see, I don't, I don't really understand like the defensive tone around him. Like it, it's, I think it's fair to just say like, well, he's smaller than we thought. Uh, he's going to be this kind of good player instead of the previous uh, kind of good player that we said. And I think he will definitely be good. The way I see it though, is he's more like, a more rugged Nelson Aguilar, like an Aguilar who can play in traffic, basically, which should be a really good player because if if Aguilar didn't suck in traffic, he would be like a borderline wide receiver one because he could he could play all over the place and produce in all parts of the field. And I think that'll be Bateman. It's just that, like you said, when you're six foot one ninety, you're not doing things that Des Bryant did. You're not you're not doing things that six two two twenty five guys can do. You can't you can't you know do Ben Wallace stuff at one ninety. No. So he's he's going to have to win with like finesse and leverage. But interesting, he, he does have 33 inch arms, which is really long. And when you he by all accounts, he's he's very technically refined. So you can imagine him having like a good like like a much better in traffic presence than you would normally see out of a player as thin as him. Just because like if he's smart about positioning the, the leverage, he can just, you know, play keep away with the ball uh, at certain points in the field. So. I, I'm as high on Rashad Bateman as I've ever been, and I've, I've always held him in like a distinctly positive regard. And yet I still came across as like a harsh critic compared to some of his super fans who his super fans were, were hammering specifically wide receiver one. They're saying like he's as good or better than Chase. And I never really saw that option. Uh, but I do think it's fair to rank him like, uh, I don't know, as high as like wide receiver. I, I, I am kind of like unwilling to move Waddle from wide receiver two. I think Waddle's going to be just insane. Yep. But if someone wants to rank Bateman ahead of Devonte Smith, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Okay. I like that. Um, let's get on. You got one more guy to, to bring up uh, here today. Um, Javante Williams. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you got to so, crack your knuckles first. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's, he's a good player and it, I kind of resent like, like we talked about players getting unfair expectations and like how that kind of distorts, it pollutes the, the discourse around that player. Um, it sets, sets public opinion up to go in weird directions. And I think Javante Williams is definitely a victim of unfair expectations. And, and I'm leery at this point of my criticisms coming across as like, I don't like the guy or that I hope he does poorly. That's very far from the case. Like I, I hope he does great. And I think he's a really good player. But the context that I'm pushing back against is this this narrative, like these people who are saying he's a running back one. He's better than Travis Etienne. He's Nick Chubb. He's Kareem Hunt. He's whatever we need to say today based on like the the, the pertinent comp information that we have to justify our completely unhinged fandom of him. It's like people are talking about him like he's he's just like not a real person, like he's some cartoon character. Or like some some Marvel hero or something. It's like the guy is a 212 pound running back 
who ran a four five eight at a pro day, and he split carries with Michael Carter for three years at North Carolina. So that's that's stuff that it's it doesn't mean that he's bad, but it means he's not Nick Chubb because Nick Chubb is two twenty seven and runs a four five two at the combine, and Nick Chubb torches the SEC as a true freshman, like just bodies behind him for, for miles as a true freshman in the SEC. Javante Williams never took over a backfield in college, and the best player he played with was Michael Carter, who people regard as like a late third, early fourth round pick, something like that. And this none of this is just to condemn Javante Williams. It's just to say, like, have reasonable expectations. Don't put him as high as Travis Etienne, who had 70 rushing touchdowns at Clemson and dominated all of his four seasons, and especially, you know, the last three. Don't and after Travis Etienne weighed in heavier and ran faster 40 by 0.15 seconds. Just let it go at that point. Don't yeah. t- don't make this expectation that Javante Williams is the number one running back. And when he runs a four or five, eight, don't say, okay, I guess he's not Nick Chubb anymore. Well, but now he's just Kareem hunt. I like, saw just, that like the, like his biggest defenders immediately just said uh, 40 times don't matter for running backs. It's like, yeah, that they, just doesn't they, sound, it doesn't sound like you're, you watch, you're handling this. Well, a lot of them were saying, 40 times don't matter for 220-pound running backs. And then it turned out he was 212. And like, well, that doesn't matter either. It yeah. doesn't matter if he's smaller. They used to say, uh, Travis Etienne can't be the top running back. He's not as big as Javante Williams. Javante Williams is smaller than Travis Etienne. Well, that doesn't matter because Javante Williams, uh, he runs, runs so much he tougher. Runs he's, so, he's so so big and strong. And like, it's, it's just so – it's ridiculous. Like, you sound like children. Just stop it. <laughs> just, just be fair to the guy. Be fair to Etienne. Stop embarrassing yourself. Just adjust on the new information, okay? Just, just say, like – I do that all the time. I guess things about players that turn out to not be true. And then at that point I have to go like, ah, never mind. Sorry yeah. about that. I, right. uh, whoops. Just do that. It's easy. And you know, I got like people asking me, why do you rank Javante Williams? Like at 18th overall in, in the, the dynasty rookie dr- dr- dynasty rookie rankings. It's like, because the receiver class is one of the strongest I've ever seen. Kyle Pitts is in it. Trevor Lawrence is in it. Justin Fields and Trey Lance are in it. And you're asking me, to put ahead of all of them a rotational back who weighs 212 pounds and doesn't break a 455. Like you you have to have basic standards at some point. And you if you go if you go with a process of putting a player with Javante Williams's objective traits ahead of players like these receivers and, and tight ends like that uh, Kyle Pitts, quarterback like Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, you're going to make some picks that make just completely no sense to you in hindsight. You're going to wonder what the hell was wrong with you putting like this is this is this is like I don't even know how to, how a comparable case of this would work because I, I don't remember anything like this. But it's like the David Montgomery hype gone completely out of hand. And in, for what it's worth, I do think Javante Williams is better than David Montgomery. Yes. But this this stuff where people just go from Chubb to Kareem Hunt, and each time you can see the the way they they're doing it, it's like, well, well, uh, Kareem Hunt ran a four six, so it's fine if Javante Williams runs like runs like a four six. It's like you didn't think that before. You said he was Chubb. Now that you're wrong about that. Just reflect on how other things you might be wrong about and, and just have some humility. Like Kylan Hill weighed in two pounds heavier than Javante Williams, ran a faster 40, was a workhorse at Mississippi State, showed more convincing pass catching work. Why is he considered like a seventh round pick and Javante Williams uh, just, you know, still infallible? It's ridiculous. Yeah. People yeah. got to just look at the picture, actually look at it. See, that's all you need to do, folks. 
Thank you, Mario, for setting the record straight there. That is going to wrap it up for this week's edition of the Rotowire NFL podcast. We will, of course, be back next Thursday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>